Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 7 this evening. Genesis chapter 7. Continue our study through this book as we see the beginning of all things and how people of Israel came about, how God's uh, plan of redemption has uh, worked its way throughout history and and this important book is foundational for our understanding of who God is and who we are, what sin is like before Him. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we can be so apathetic in our Christian lives is because we have such a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. And I'm convinced that we don't really understand how awful our sin is before a holy God. I don't think that we fully understand how much God hates sin. This flood judgment that we're going to read about this evening gives us a clear window into God's mind with regard to His view of sin. Think about that as we study this passage this evening. Let me begin by reading chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights on the very same day Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. I believe this worldwide catastrophic flood shows us how serious God is about our sin. The boarding of the ship, or the ark, I should say, begins in verse 13. Notice the recipients of God's grace, the, the ones who would be protected from this flood judgment. It is Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, his wife, Noah's wife, and his son's wives, as well as, verse 14, at least two of every air-breathing animal. Every air-breathing animal. We talked last week why God didn't need to have an aquarium inside there. Um, the, the, um, the animals that would live in the water could be saved in the water. And verse 16 tells us that they all entered according to the command of God. They all came to the ark according to God's command. We talked about this briefly last week, that it was God who brought them there, and God shut them in. And so God takes responsibility both for those who are protected, those who are inside the ark, according to the command of the Lord, and those who are being judged. In other words, by implication, all those who didn't make it into the ark were judged by the design of God. The next thing that happens is that the earth fills. 
the earth fills. We see this in verses 10 through 12 and verses 17 through 24. This takes about 150 days. You have a timeline on the back of your handout according to uh, these two chapters that we're going to study, and it shows you how long each thing takes place. And what we're going to see is that it takes 150 days to fill up the earth. Forty days of it was rain, and the other part we'll talk about here in just a second. Verses 10 through 12 say that the waters came from above. You see that in verse 11. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. We'll talk about that in just a second. And the floodgates of the sky were opened. So first we want to see the waters from above. From the second day of creation, chapter 1, verse 7, up until the time of Noah, all the condensation that there was on the earth was all stored up in the upper atmosphere. And that is why it says in verse 11 that the floodgates of the sky were opened and that the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you picture in your mind what a modern radar map would look like of the entire earth at that time? For 40 days and 40 nights, there would be nothing but rain. According to John Wickham, who has written a book called The Genesis Flood, one of the he, he wrote it with a man by the name of Leon Morris. Uh, I think actually it's Henry Morris. Um, and one of the arguments that he makes there is this could never happen again. Because of the way that the atmosphere was set up at that time, never having rained before that time, uh, there was enough water to be able to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But now, meteorologists suggest that if all of the condensation that was uh, stored up into the, the sky were rained, rained upon the entire earth all at one time, it would only make about two inches of rain uh, across the entire world. Uh, so you say, well, how, come, how could that possibly be? I know of places that, that are getting more than two inches right now, so how could it only be two inches? But you've got to remember that those are localized, uh, those are localized uh, storms. And so what these meteorologists suggest is that the, at the most, uh, the entire world could only be filled up to about two inches deep, not as deep as what we're going to see here. So the waters from above burst open, and as a result, there is rain for 40 straight days. But it's not only that. Verse 11 also says that, that the fountains of the great deep burst, op burst open in the middle of the verse. The waters come up from below. In essence, what's happening here, according to Whitcomb and Morris, is that, that, that God is lifting the ocean floors to spill out waters over the land. And so it would, it would um, result in, in continents being submerged in water. It would be like a worldwide tsunami taking place where the waters of the deep are bursting open, pouring out onto the land, providing a great means of God's judgment. And this would take place for the full 150 days because it seems as if during that time the water prevails, even beyond the time that it's raining, beyond the 40 days that it's raining, it seems to prevail and is to, to increase. We'll see that here in just a second. So what's happening now is the water that's all stored up in the atmosphere and the water that's all stored in the deep are all coming together. And what we have is 
what we could call a decreation. Remember, at the time of creation, one of the things that God did in chapter 1 was He separated the waters from the waters. Right? He put an expanse between them, which, which uh, Moses tells us that that expanse is the heavens. And um, so we have two separated waters. Now what's happening with the flood judgment is all those waters are coming back together. And as a result, we had a great judgment that came, uh, the greatest judgment that came upon the earth up until that time. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that the waters rose. It says in verse 17, Then the flood came up upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. So all that work that Noah and his sons put into building that ark paid off. It, It actually floated. That's a good thing. Verse 19 says that the waters prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Now, how should we understand this? Is this just the high mountains that that Noah knew about? Was it just the ones that he knew about? So the ones that he remembers from his childhood, the ones that he used to to go and... and, uh, on um, adventure journeys or whatever he would do in his spare time. Are are these just those types of mountains? Not according to verse 19. It says, All the high mountains, notice, everywhere under the heavens were covered. Now some people would argue that this was just a local flood. That this only happened in a small area. Suppose that these spotlights here were the top of the highest mountain. Okay, how would we get enough water filled up so that it would reach the top of this mountain? Okay, first thing we do is we grab a garden hose, and because of the amount of water we're going to be using, we'd plug it into our neighbor's line. We'd start pouring it in right below where we're trying to fill, right? And when we did that, we, we don't build up a cone of water. Right? Water always goes to the lowest place, so it has to fill up all the low places. In order for the tallest mountain to be covered, what has to happen? That means the entire earth has to be covered. So, so the people who argue that this was just a local judgment, that this was just a flood, kind of like what we see today, and maybe filled up so high that it covered a couple of the hills there, I think is, is not uh, a tenable argument. According to verse 20, it tells us how high this water rose. Verse 20 says, The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Remember what a cubit was? It's the the distance between your elbow and the top of your finger, 18 inches roughly. And so we're talking about 22 and a half feet. So in addition to covering all of the mountains everywhere, verse 19, it, it went up above that another 22 and a half feet. And that would basically um, give us, that would be important for two reasons. Number one, it allows for the ark to fr- flow freely among the mountaintops. You can imagine how devastating it could be if the ark is, is bouncing off of, of mountains, but instead it, it is able to, to rise above that and float freely. It also proves that the flood was worldwide. 
And uh, as I mentioned earlier, in order for that water to cover the highest mountain and to go 22 and a half feet higher, it would have to fill the entire earth. And that's why we know that this is a worldwide judgment. The result of this judgment is found in verses 21 through 23. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle, and cattle, excuse me, and beasts, and every swarming thing that the sw- that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. As a result of this worldwide catastrophic judgment, every air-breathing animal, every air-breathing human, that would be every human, died. And the only people that were left were Noah and his family, and the only animals were left were the ones that were on board the ark. The only air-breathing animals were the ones that were on board the ark. Verse 24 gives us further detail. The water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. You thought it took a long time to fill up your swimming pool. It takes 150 days for the earth to fill with water. It includes the 40 days of rain. And so the earth fills. But then in chapter 8, verses 1-5, through 5, the earth begins to drain. The earth begins to drain in chapter 8, verses 1-5. through 5. God remembers Noah and all these animals. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. What does this mean that God remembered Noah? Could it be that God had forgotten them? That God had forgotten Noah and his family? And because he was so intent on making sure that this flood actually worked, that he had forgotten that Noah had built an ark and, and all the animals and people in it? Of course not. Rather, what's going on here is Moses is using language to help us see that God is faithful to his promises. Whenever you see the word remember connected with God in the Scriptures, what you're going to see is that God is faithful to His promises. For example, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, when it says that He will remember your sins no more, what does it mean? It means that He will cast them out of His presence, that He will remove them, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. It's not that He has forgotten what you've done, or that He can't call it back to mind, but He chooses not to. He removes it from His presence and treats you as if it has been removed far away. If we, we could look at this negatively by looking at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 9. You don't have to turn there, but here it says that God forgets the wicked. What does that mean, that God forgets them? It means that He doesn't He doesn't come upon them with His special presence or He casts them out of His presence. We could say that He remembers them no more when we understand He fully knows about them, but He chooses to cast them out of His presence. It's simply a human, humanly way of speaking about God's thoughts about people. So when we read that God remembers, it means that God is moving towards that object of His memory. 
Okay, so when he remembers them no more, it means he's moving them away. He's moving away from them. And um, it simply means that God will fulfill his promises. See, from our perspective, it seems as if God has forgotten about us. Perhaps that was the case with Noah. Can you imagine being in, in this boat for 150 days, five months? feels sometimes as if God is not there, as if He forgot about His promises. So when the fulfillment comes, when God actually acts on your behalf, it feels as if, from our perspective, that God is remembering. Do you see? But from His perspective, it's not that He's remembering. It's that He is acting upon His promises. He's doing what He said He would do from the beginning. Let me give you some more examples from the Scripture. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. God remembered Abraham and showed mercy on Lot and his family. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. The people of Israel groan in Egypt and God remembers His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, He moves to them. He moves to them, acts on behalf of them. Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of my people and have remembered my covenant. In Judges chapter 16, verse 28, Samson calls out to the Lord and says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Remember, this is where Samson kills more people in his death than he did in his life. And he calls upon God not to recall him back to his mind as if God had forgotten about it, but move according to your promises. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 42, O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remove your loving kindness to your servant David. Or, I'm sorry, remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Psalm chapter 98, verse 3, He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Perhaps a familiar one for you is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, when the thief on the cross asks Christ to remember Him in paradise. What is He asking for? Is He saying, Jesus, when you get to paradise, will you think about Me? Will you just call Me to your mind and just have a good thought about Me? What is he saying? Move with mercy upon me according to your promises that you will save all those who call upon you. That's what he's calling for. He's not asking for Christ to call him to mind. You see? So here in chapter 8, verse 1 of Genesis, what God is saying is, is or what Moses is saying is that God has called to mind Noah, that he has, he has moved with mercy upon him, him and his family according to his promise. And as a result, he sends this wind upon the earth that causes the water to subside. At this time, the springs of the deep, the, the tsunami, the worldwide tsunami that took place, along with the rain, had already stopped falling, but the, the worldwide tsunami had, had finally subsided, and the rains, of course, stopped. Verse 2 tells us about this. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And during this period, 
uh, of draining takes 150 days, according to verse 3. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. After this, the, mount, the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat, on the mountains of Ararat, verse 4. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, a lot of times when we picture this in our minds, at least for me, I picture the ark being all the way up at the top of the highest mountain. And what you have to understand here is that the end of the verse says the mountains of Ararat. So we could say the mountain range of Ararat, not just Mount Ararat. They're all the way up at the top. It's kind of teetering a little bit. And um, the reason I say that that that's probably not what happened is because, for one, the water had already been receding for 150 days. And how would they have gotten out of the ark if it was teetering at the top of the mountain like I have pictured it in the past? I don't think that that really makes a whole lot of sense. So what's likely is that it it landed or came to rest upon in the mountains of Ararat, in the mountain range of Ararat, probably on a nice level area, which if you've been mountain climbing, you know that that is often the case, come to plateaus, and, and it would make a nice place for the uh, people and animals to, to disembark and to be distributed throughout the earth. Um, then in chapter 8, verses 6 through 12, the earth dries. So the water had receded, but now it needs to dry and, and, and uh, probably recede a little bit more. Uh, in verse 7, we see that he, Noah, sends out a, a raven. Let's begin in verse 6. We haven't read that one. Then it came about the end of the 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So first he sends out a raven. It flies around. And if it's the same pattern as it is with the dove, he probably doesn't send out the dove until seven days later because that's what he does each time with the dove. So the raven was probably sent out first and then seven days later, then the dove, and then uh, the dove a second time, and then the dove a third time. In verses 10 and 11, we see that he sends out, uh, verses 8 and 9, sends out the dove. Um, but obviously the first time, as you know, he came back, he or she came back. Verse 8, Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark. For the water was on the surface of all the earth, and then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he sends out the dove, and she comes back to him. And so he waits. Verse 10 says that he does it again after seven days. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Now, how would Noah know from the dove picking an olive leaf and bringing it back that the water had abated, that it had receded? Well, there's two reasons why he would know that the waters had gone down significantly. Number one, olive trees do not grow in Denver. Okay? They don't grow in high elevations. So for, for, for Noah, they, they wouldn't, you wouldn't find an olive tree at the top of a mountain. The dove goes out, finds an olive tree at the top of a mountain. And the reason for that is because olive trees survive in very hot climates. 
they do not survive in cold climates. And uh, um, so high elevations would not be um, very good for them. So he knows that it's closer to the ground in a lower elevation where it would be warmer. And also the second reason he knows that the water is receding is because olive trees do not grow very tall. The tallest olive tree would be around 49 feet. So imagine or, or consider for yourself how much the water has receded from the time that it prevailed over the highest mountain. Okay, we're talking tens of thousands of feet above sea level, and now it's receded all the way down to some of the highest climates and only uh, in a tree being only, at the most, 50 feet tall. And so Noah knew that at this point the waters had receded from tens of thousands of feet all the way down to tens of feet maybe 20, 30 feet left of water uh, remaining on the earth. And sure enough, Moses, Moses, Noah was right. Moses would come later. Noah was right. He sends out the dove the third time. The water had been receding. And we see this um, in, in verse 12. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. This is recorded for us to perhaps help us to, to, to be put in their shoes and to, into their sandals, to think about what it was like. To be in this ark for over 300 days, nearly a year at this point, and waiting for, for them to get out of this ark. Maybe it felt like a, a prison in some sense. They, they certainly recognized they were being protected by God, but... But now a feeling of hope that God is is working on their behalf. That that this ark has come to a rest. Now it's coming close to the point where we're going to be able to to leave this ark and to leave it behind. What was meant for protection for us will now be in our past. Well, it's time to disembark in verses 13 through 19. Now it came about in the sixth in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So Noah removes the covering from the ark, and he gets this message from the Lord that it's time to, to exit the ark. Now, uh, I do want to address one more thing before we make some application for ourselves, and that is, how could the animals have survived in the boat for over a year? On the back of your handout, I say that, according to Wickham and Morris, and it seems to be consistent with the timeline that's given for us in the Scriptures, that they were here for, in, in the ark for 371 days. How could they have survived for that long? Well, the fact that God moved to action, remember he, 
He remembers them, chapter 8, verse 1, shows that God was ultimately responsible for caring for these animals. What a huge task it must have been for Noah and his family to care for all these animals, thousands of animals. In his book, Whitcomb suggests that God may have caused them, uh, many of the, the mammals particularly, to slip into a state of hibernation, maybe even the birds. This would require very little food and very little care. And um, this is supported, according to Whitcomb, of, uh, based on verse 17. What it, what it appears from this verse is that they don't begin, the animals do not begin to reproduce until after they leave the ark. It's as if God is saying, okay, you had this whole year. I am sovereignly caring for you during this time. You're not going to reproduce during this time, but when you get out of the ark, now it's time. So some way God works with their instinct, their animal instinct, to either put them in some sort of hibernation or at the very least stop them from reproducing, uh, which would have created a probably a um, more, difficult, uh, more difficult circumstances for Noah and his families to care for even more animals. Whatever the case, what we do know is that God remembers them, that God moves with mercy upon them according to His promises, that He was caring for these people and these animals, that they would be the, the new beginning of all of the, the families of the earth. And so, we look at this devastation, we think about how long it took, and we do this because I think it shows us, I think Mo, Moses in his book of Genesis works hard to, to, to paint the details for us, I think partially to show that, that it's real, but also to show us the profound hatred that God has for sin. We should see from this passage that God is very serious about sin, that He destroys the entire earth, save these on the ark, by water. And because of this, as we saw last week from Second Peter 3, we know that He will follow through on His promise to destroy the entire earth again, this time not by water. But in spite of the judgment that comes, we've been seeing through this book of Genesis, that God often shows His mercy. And He shows it to this family, this family of Noah. And perhaps you're thinking, what kind of God is this? I mean, if you just think about the devastation that came upon the earth, if you can just picture in your mind hey, those videos that you saw of the tsunami, the few tsunamis that we've seen in the last several years, and imagine that to be a worldwide catastrophe. How could God act in this way? How could God destroy the entire world by water. How could it do how could he do what he's described as doing? Look again at chapter seven, verse twenty one. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind, of all that was on dry land, and all whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Thus, He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left. 
together with those that were with him on the ark. How could God do this? He he completely blots them out. God could do that because he hates sin so vehemently. He hates it. He abhors it. I think one of the main reasons that we don't shudder before God and don't long to be in His presence is because, as I said at the beginning, we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves and a a low view of how God sees sin. We think that God just kind of sweeps it under the rug, but, but this shows us in this passage how serious God is. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He deals with it. Sin has to be paid for. Believer, do you realize how wicked your sin is before God? Think about what we have done to the God who's made it all. From the very beginning of creation, God commanded and the objects of the universe obeyed. In Genesis chapter 1, we find out that God said, Let there be light, and the light appeared. He said, Yes, God, I will, I will do it. Okay, if we want to personify these things. He said, Let the waters be separated. You go there and you there. And it was so, the Scriptures tell us. He said, Let the sun rule the day and the moon rule the night. And, and it happened. Let the sea creatures appear, and they did. Let the land animals appear, and they did. Even though, even Adam obeyed God at the beginning when he named all the animals. But then we come along, sin comes into the world, and, and God says, you do something. And we say, no. And look at the consequence of Adam's sin. The result was that the entire human race was plunged into condemnation. You see how much God hates sin? You see how seriously He takes it? It's not like, oh, it's okay. I command and all creation obeys me, but when you disobey me, it's okay. God hates our sin. Why do you think that God would overlook the sin of Adam? Why do you think that God would overlook the sin of Adam's descendants? Why would God overlook the sin of the people whose only intent was was wickedness all the time? It was always evil. Why would God overlook that? He can't overlook sin unless it's paid in full. So we defy the God who made us when we sin. And it's not as if we're just defying a local magistrate or or a judge of a small town. I mean, how fearful would you be if you sinned against some judge who had authority over you? How fearful would you be? One time our family was heading down to the Erie Apple Orchard and we got off the expressway and the speed limit slowed from 55 to 45, 35, 25, and back up to 35, all in the space of one or two miles between the expressway and the orchard. And uh, as a result of speeding, we were pulled over and given a ticket. I'll let you guess who was driving. 
Now suppose after the cop walked away that I took the ticket. I just gave you a hint. I took the ticket and I ripped it up. He, he had already walked away. I ripped it up and thought, you know what? I'm not worried about that. Never thought about it again. Well, that be very smart of me. Okay, for me, in that small town that really only had a magistrate who had authority over me, I was fearful in some sense because I recognized that he had authority. He could actually do something to me if I defied him. Said, you know what? I don't. I don't follow your rules. I don't. I don't acknowledge your ticket. That was given to me by the person who's serving for you. And that's just a small town. Yet I am fearful of him because he has authority. Now suppose it was some greater authority, like, for example, the President of the United States. Suppose you're watching the Dream Cruise here this last week, and you're standing on the street, Woodward there, and and, uh, you see President Obama coming up to you, and he comes to shake your hand, And instead of shaking his hand, you spit in his face and punch him in the stomach. How much trouble, let's say after that you ran and they didn't initially catch you, how much trouble would you be fearful of getting into as a result of doing that to the president? Wouldn't you be in even more fear because you recognize the power that he wields and he can bring down judgment upon you? when it comes to your sin, you haven't sinned against the magistrate of a small town or the judge of a big city or the governor of a state nor the president of the United States. You haven't even sinned against Satan himself. You have sinned against the God of the entire universe. Why would God not take that seriously? All those other authorities would cause you to fear because of their power and ability to enact retribution against you. And yet you and I have sinned against the God who made us. The God who owns it all. Who who runs this place. And He is unlike all of those leaders that I just, just mentioned. He is completely holy and He hates sin. Why would you ever think that He would ignore it? Why would he ignore the sin of these people who have defied him? Why would he ignore the sin that's going to come in the day of the Antichrist? God will judge sin. I hope that you regularly, even though you have been bought, that that as we sang earlier, that you have redeemed, you have been bought with a price, with the blood of Jesus Christ, even though that is true. I hope that's true in your heart. I hope you still recognize the the weight of your sin regularly. That apart from Jesus Christ, you stand before the God of the universe who deserves to bring condemnation upon you and yet you've pacified His wrath. Not because of anything that you have done, but because Jesus has borne your sins for you on the cross. Do you recognize that? That the best response of your heart should be worship. That you should fall down before God in amazement and serve Him with all that you have. 
All the apathy should be cast away. No more thoughts of, oh, I've got to go to church again. Or, I have to deal with these unlikable people in my life. Or, I have to serve God in this way. I just have to do it. It, 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 it just controls me. It feels like all of my life I'm, I'm being directed or forced to do things for God. It, it all goes away when we recognize that we stand condemned before God. That we deserve His just punishment. That we deserve to be in a flood like this because of our sin. You're happy to serve Him because as a Christian you recognize you're standing before God and that you're happy to do whatever He pleases. If that means that you have to clean bathrooms and a prison for the rest of your life, if that what it, that's what it, it takes to serve God, then you're happy to do it. I mean, how arrogant are we when it comes to our life within the body of Christ? When we come to a place of worship and we say, what does God have to offer to me today? What can He give to me? What can I get out of this? I mean, we're talking about the God of the universe, the the judge of all that lives. We should be asking, what can we offer to Him? What can we give to Him? What has Christ enabled us to do through the power of His Spirit, through the Gospel? What has He allowed us to do so that we can come before this great King, bow down before Him and offer our praises, our worship to Him, our service to Him, our gifts to Him? Our knees should buckle before Him when we recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, we are condemned. We are worthless. God is serious about sin. And the God who judges, who, who judged the world through the flood because of their sin will not be rejected. Because those who do reject Him will be punished. And I hope you recognize that while this was the greatest judgment that had come upon the world up until this time, it was not the greatest judgment of all. That came when Jesus Christ bore your sin. He received the greatest amount of judgment. Because He took upon Himself the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, upon Himself as if He were the sinner. He bore your shame, your guilt, the, the feeling that you get after you sin against God and, and the stain that you feel, that's what Jesus felt for you. And that was the greatest judgment that, come, that, that has come. And now there's going to be another judgment that's going to come. And it's going to be the final judgment. Jesus will be the judge. And the way that we know that will happen is because God is true when He says that He will judge the earth then... And God will follow through on His promise to bring judgment upon the world in the future. Upon Satan and all of his demons. Upon all those who oppose Him. So, so what can you offer to God? Okay, We, we often sing, nothing in my hands I bring. What, what can we offer to God? That really is the question. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That is the answer. We can offer to God 
the holy lives that we live as a result of clinging to that cross, the, the fact that, that we can go boldly before God only as possible because of what Christ did. You see, as an unbeliever, people cannot please God. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says. That they cannot please God. They are opposed to Him and they cannot please God. Nor are they willing to do so. They don't even want to. Even if they could. And yet as a believer, you have the ability to please God. Why? It's because of your clinging to that cross. That you stand in the same place that Jesus stands. Not condemned. God sees you as righteous and He can take your acts of holiness and use them for His glory. He can be pleased in you. I guess the summary would be don't ever take lightly your sin. Don't ever just blow it off as if, you know what, God doesn't care. He's already taken care of it. It's true. He has taken care of it if you're saved. But don't ever minimize it. Recognize yourself before the holy God of the universe, apart from Jesus Christ. Regularly recognize and feel the weight of your sin before that holy God. And then and then what... what uh, Jerry Bridges often uh, recommends is that you take that sin, okay, that, that just judgment that comes upon you as a result of your sin, and in your mind, put it on Jesus Christ because He's already taken it. And then you go before God and you say to God, God, I stand before you boldly because of Jesus Christ. He's already taken my punishment. He's already stood in my place. He's lived righteously for me. So, God, I can come to You boldly, not in a brash way, not in an irreverent way. We're still coming before the King of the universe, but but in a way where we're not still self-condemned. That, as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken it upon Himself. God is serious about our, his, our sin, and we should be as well. We are serving the holy God of the universe, and He takes it very seriously as seen in the flood judgment. Let's pray. Father, again, we are humbled at Your Word and how it speaks to our heart, how it drives directly to the core of who we are. And we are shamed, as we often do come to times of worship, looking for what we can get out of it. And sometimes we leave criticizing the, the service that we have. I didn't like that song. I didn't like the way someone treated me. When The way that we should be responding is, what can we do for you? How can you use us to be your workmanship? How can we serve you? How can we give of ourselves to you? You own it all. You're no small magistrate or judge or governor or president. You are the maker of it all. So you demand and deserve all that we have. Help us, Lord, to recognize ourselves in light of our former sin, our current sin, and recognize what Christ did for us. And as a result, turn to you in faith, believing that you will remember us in the words of Genesis. That you will move according to Your promises to help us in time of need. 
we beg for Your mercy. We pray for Your Spirit's power as He helps to, to plant this deep in our hearts. We need Your help, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.